Well, one of the most important questions facing the church is this question. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Historically, Christians have answered that question, yes. But increasingly, this is changing, at least in the Western world. Instead, more people are adopting the view that many religions ultimately lead to God. And that belief is heavily promoted in our news media and our entertainment culture. And the result is that that belief has become very widespread. 2008, the Pew Forum, which is known for doing these kind of studies, the Pew Forum on Public and Religious Life did a major study on religious affiliation, beliefs, and practices in America. And it found that 70% of Americans believe that many religions can lead to eternal life, Six, including 65% of self-identifying Christians. Now, we all know that a lot of Americans identify themselves as Christians based probably more on heritage and tradition more than conviction and understanding. But even among evangelical Christians, those with deeper convictions, 56% believe that there are many paths to eternal life. So what is the truth? What is the truth? Was the church, as the followers of Jesus... We need to know what he actually taught. Because Jesus is the sole authority to settle that question, right? So today we're going to look at a very important passage from the Gospel of John, where Jesus addresses that very issue in one of his famous I am statements. I am the way and the truth and the life. As we're going to see from this passage, that this isn't just an academic debate. No, the question matters because Christianity stands or falls on the uniqueness of Jesus and the exclusivity of the salvation that he accomplished on the cross. And the question also affects the very motive for missions of Jesus is not the way. So I want you to turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And again, we're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John. And today we come to the six of these famous I Am statements where Jesus asserts something about Himself. We've seen Him say things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. We had a little slide there of the different I am statements that we have looked at so far. And again, we're on number six. These statements deal with different aspects of our relationship with Jesus because they assert something about himself and our relationship. And we know that the number seven signifies fullness and completeness. John shows these seven statements that Jesus makes to talk about the fullness and the richness of the relationship that we share with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so again, today we're going to focus on the statement, I am the way, and the truth, 
and the life. Now embedded in this passage itself, I hope you will also be very encouraged and blessed by Jesus' discussion on the topic of heaven. Really beautiful passage with that. Now before we dive into John chapter 14, I need to set uh, the, the background here because it's very important. This, is, this, this passage occurs on Thursday night, the last night of Jesus' life. So this is the night before the cross, okay? And in John 13, we know that Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. And he transforms that Passover meal into the Lord's Supper, which we are to remember about Jesus. And so they're celebrating this last meal in the upper room, which was basically a guest room. Now, that was a momentous and powerful occasion as Jesus celebrated this meal. But the conversation and the events that took place grew very disturbing to the disciples. Let me tell you a couple things that happened. For one thing, Jesus lets them know that one of them was going to betray him. Now, after he says this, Judas gets up and leaves the table and departs. But the disciples, they still don't get it. What is going on? They have no idea that Judas is betraying Jesus. After Judas leaves, then Jesus begins. It's kind of like the doors close, and then Jesus gathers the disciples together. And from the John 13, 31, all the way through John 17 is what people call the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. This is Jesus pulling the disciples together and giving them teaching and instruction and words of comfort before the cross. So as he does this, then he also brings up the fact that he is about to leave them, meaning he is about to die. Again, the disciples weren't understanding this. It was told in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and die, but most Jews of the time thought that the Messiah would only come at the end of time and establish his kingdom. They had no concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die. So when Jesus says these things to them, it's just not computing, and it's making them confused, and it's making them upset, and they're thinking, how can this be? How can he be leaving? Right? He hasn't set up his kingdom yet. And on a personal note, you have to be thinking that they're thinking, I have left everything behind to come and follow Jesus and now he's leaving? What's up? Right? Where's the kingdom? They were obviously very upset. And then Peter jumps in and says that he would follow Jesus anywhere. He would even die for Jesus. Well, Jesus responds by telling Peter, you're going to deny me three times by the time the rooster crows. If Peter was the bold leader of the disciples and he was going to deny Jesus, then what is going to happen to everybody else? So overall, things were not looking very good for the disciples. And it's at this point, as they're confused and afraid, that Jesus comes along and gives them words of comfort. Which is astounding because in reality... Jesus was facing a far grimmer future than they were. Jesus was, again, the night before his cross, when he would face the agonizing torment of the cross, as well as the alienation and judgment of God upon himself 
to atone for our sins. So if anyone really should have been receiving comfort and support, it should have been Jesus, right? But instead, he thinks of others and turns to them and gives them these words of comfort. So that's what we see here. The first part of our passage is Jesus gives words of comfort. So John chapter 14, everybody there with me? All right, everybody still awake? All right, you're hanging in there. Good. I'll check in a little bit later. All right, so verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let me stop there. You know, in the Old Testament, God would often tell people, do not be afraid. And Jesus comes along and he does the same thing. He knows that they're going to face these enormous challenges, these disciples, but he doesn't want them to be troubled. And the answer for that is for them to believe in God and also to believe in Jesus. Now, when he talks about belief, he doesn't just think, okay, well, you are to acknowledge that I exist and acknowledge that God exists. That's not what belief means in the Bible, is it? Belief means a firm trust, a personal trust in God. And so we're to trust God based on His character, His power, and His promises. We're to trust God based on His faithfulness to us in the past. So if your heart is troubled, what should you do? Trust in God. Trust in God. I know that's a whole other sermon that could break out in a lot of different ways, but we'll just leave it there for now, that we're to trust in God. And by the way, did you notice how Jesus says, Uh, believe in God and believe also in me kind of puts them right on the same parallel we've been seeing this all throughout the gospel of John that Jesus is putting himself as God because he is God this will be important a little bit later in the message then Jesus goes to this specific promise in verses two and three words that we're often familiar with verses two and three say in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so Would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So their hearts could be assured because Jesus was preparing, he was leaving to prepare a place for them, and he says that it is his father's house. What does he mean? Well, I think the father's house It's just simply referring to heaven. It's just saying that this is heaven. Now, we know from other scriptures that heaven is described in different ways. We know from Revelation 21 that heaven is described as a city, right? Hebrews 11 says the same thing. We also see that it's described as a whole new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. So these are different images that are given about heaven, okay? And I think we need to weave them all together. I don't think we should simply think of heaven as just one big house. That's not the point here. But Jesus does, though, we'll see a little bit further what he means by that, but he talks about also that there are many rooms in heaven. Now, most of us have heard the the King James Version translation, which says, in my Father's house are many rooms mansions right all heard that before not the best translation i don't think jesus is saying that there are many mansions there okay hope that's not a letdown for you guys the greek word is better translated rooms rooms or dwelling places or abodes okay 
So it's not a huge mansion that you get. Okay, Rather, the idea is an enormous house where there are many rooms in the house. Now, before you start getting discouraged and bummed out, thinking, man, my room's kind of small right now, or I grew up in a small room, is this what i got to look forward to in heaven? You're missing the point. It's an enormous house, and there are multitudes of rooms. And in fact, the point is, is that there is room for everybody. There is spaciousness galore. But even more than that, I want us to get a point, the point across is that Jesus is now making this. He's not done. He's in the process of making it. And when he comes at the second coming, that's when the house will be complete. That is when the new heaven and the new earth will be complete. As of now, he's working on it. He's constructing it, so to speak. Not necessarily with bricks and mortar, but he is making this. And then we will dwell forever in the house of God in the new creation. And perhaps most of all, I think he wants us to get the point that not only is this spacious, but it's secure. It is secure. I am going to make this thing for you. I am going to prepare this place for you. And you will be there. Think about it. The context here. we got to always go by the context. The disciples, they're looking at Jesus and they're unsure of the future, aren't they? And so Jesus tells them these things to bring assurance and comfort. They're about to face hardships. Jesus is letting them know these hardships will not knock you away from your ultimate destination. And nothing's changed for you and I sitting here today, right? Do you guys know the future? Well, all right, all right, all right. Not the immediate future, do you? And that's why it's hard. We all know that we're going to face hardships, but none of those things will block you from your ultimate destination. It is secure. You will be there. I don't know about you, but I can endure just about any hard, long journey if I know I'm going to get home. Right? I mean, if you know that, okay, this is temporary, I'm going to make it home, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever had a case where your flight gets canceled, you have to spend the night at the airport, and you're thinking, I'm never going to make it home, or the tire go, blows out, and you're thinking, I'm, this, is, this is terrible, but what drives you is that you have a hope and an assurance that you will make it home, right? You're not going to have to sleep for the rest of your life out on the side of a road. You're going home. I think that's what Jesus wants us to take away from that. I'm preparing a place for you. This will be your home. Even if you are separated from me for a while, it will not last forever. I will take you home. But we will join him. So Jesus is going away. And our home's going to be glorious and permanent. And it should settle our hearts. Does that settle your heart some today? Maybe as you're thinking about some of the trials you're going through? It's meant to. So Jesus is going away and he's preparing this for them. And then he offers in verse 4 uh, another word of encouragement. He, he identifies the way to heaven. And he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. So the disciples, 
They didn't have to figure it out. They knew how to get there. They knew the way to heaven. But they didn't get it yet. Verse 5, Thomas, one of the disciples, says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, we know good old Thomas. He gets pegged as the doubter, right? But I think it's a little bit unfair because if you notice, he spoke in the plural here, didn't we? We, he's speaking on behalf of them. He wasn't the only one who didn't get this stuff. They were all confused and didn't get what Jesus was talking about. How do we know where you're going? In verse 6, Jesus says to them those words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way to heaven. I want us to look at each of these three words there. Way, truth, and life. And we're going to work our way, sorry, backwards with the three different words, okay? Because I think the word way is the most important. So let's look first at Jesus is the life. Let's make sure we understand that. Jesus is the life. We've already seen that word life appear in the Gospel of John quite a bit. It means eternal life. We've seen how it appears in other of these statements. I am the bread of life, or I am the resurrection and the life. It's referring to eternal life, which isn't just quantity of life, but it's quality of life. Meaning that you know God. You have a relationship with God. John 17.3, Jesus gives a Webster definition of eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus, he is life, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just receive life like we have to receive life, don't we, from other people or from God. Jesus is life. He has life in himself. And he gives eternal life. He gives a new spirit to people when they believe in his message. And he know, we, he know, we know that he's going to rise again very soon, showing that his victory is over death. So he has in a resurrection body. And we also saw last week that he's going to give resurrection bodies to his people. So Jesus is the life. He's risen on Easter morning. He gives his people glorious, imperishable resurrection bodies. Jesus is life. He's also the truth. Not only does Jesus know about the truth, He is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth, the centerpiece of redemptive history. Remember back in John chapter 1, 14? He said, or the, the apostle says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. So Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And His message is truth. And it transforms people when they hear it. Their lives are forever changed. Remember what He said back in John 8.32, that you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So Jesus is the truth. And then thirdly, Jesus is the way. He is the way. As I said, I think that's probably the most important of the three words because it appears first in the list, and that's typically the case, that when a word appears first, it's the primary thing that's trying to be communicated there. So Jesus is the way. What is he trying to get at there by saying, I am the way? I think he's getting at the fact that his way is the exclusive way of salvation. He is the way to salvation. 
Remember, he did this a little bit earlier when he said, I am the door. Now, when they would have a door of a sheep pen, this was in connection with the, the shepherd imagery, there would be one door in front of the sheep pen, right? And so there was one way. Jesus said, I'm the door. There's no other way. There's no other entry point. He said that back in John chapter 10, 7. He is the door. And I think he's echoing it here. And Jesus, friend, he is not a way of salvation. What does he say? I am the way. And he reinforces it with that following sentence when he says, no one comes to the Father except through what? Me. So Jesus was going to leave the disciples and go to heaven. And he is the way of salvation. Now, as I said at the beginning of the message, I know that this is a controversial and challenging topic in our culture. So I want to dwell on it a little bit and kind of go back through some things that we've seen in the Gospel of John that I hope will help us galvanize that firmness and affirm what Jesus is saying here in this statement. And let me give you three reasons why we should affirm that Jesus is the way of salvation. First is the uniqueness of Jesus' identity. Friends, there's just no one like Jesus. There's no one like him. And we've seen this in the Gospel of John. Remember how John started off where he is compared to the, he is the creator. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is eternal. He's preexistent. He's made all things. That's pretty unique, isn't it? And then he becomes a man. And during his life, Jesus performed all of these unprecedented miracles that we went through a while back. Remember the seven signs that John talks about where he's turning the water into wine. He's healing the sick. He is walking on water. He is raising the dead. Incredible what Jesus does. And then he makes these claims about himself. Remember the message where we did about Jesus was in the, in, the, in the temple area and he tells everybody, I am, was his name, right? The name of God, Jesus says, I am. And they wanted to stone him because they knew what he was saying. And then he makes all of these I am statements and a lot of them point to his unique identity. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Well, that was a title in the Old Testament to speak of God, the shepherd of Israel. So Jesus knows what he's saying when he gets to these things, that he stands alone in who he is. Jesus is also unique in his mission. He came to die for our sin and to stand as our sinless substitute. Unlike you and I, who we are all sinners, Jesus has never sinned. Remember when he challenged the opponents in John 8.46 when he said, which of you convicts me of sin? And they couldn't. So Jesus is sinless, and he laid down his life for us so that our sins can be forgiven, to be atoned for. He paid the penalty, listen to this, friends, completely, completely on our behalf. So that when he died on the cross, what were some of his final words? He says, it is finished. He did it all. That's why we sing that song, Jesus paid it all. We add nothing to what he did. And if I could cheat for a second and sneak another verse from outside of John, 
Hebrews 10.12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. I mean, this is the picture we're getting from Jesus here, right? He's incredible. He's unique. And then, if that wasn't enough, He rises from the dead to show that He's victorious over sin and death and Satan. No one else rises from the dead. No one. So when you take all of this together, you see the uniqueness of His mission. mission. There's no other way to atone for our sins unless we place our belief in Jesus. Our sins remain unforgiven and that we will have to pay for them in judgment. Jesus says Himself in John 3.18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 8.24, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So we need to believe in Jesus' identity, that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe in His mission that He came to make a way of salvation by dying for us on the cross. And I think once you do that, if you really get that and understand that, then the conversation about Jesus being the way, the exclusive way of salvation, it just sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Because there's no one like Him. I mean, it's just apples and oranges when you compare Jesus to any other human being that has ever walked the face of this earth. And that's why we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene. And that leads to the last point, the testimony of the early church. And I hope this will be something for us to ponder here. You know, in the first century, there was tremendous pressure, just like in our day, for the church to compromise its belief in the exclusivity of Jesus. The Jews wanted the church to deny Jesus' deity. There was a lot of pressure. The Romans were polytheists, so they didn't care if, they worship, if, you, if the church worshipped Jesus just as long as He was up there with all of the other gods that they had, right? But just don't make it exclusive. So the church was under tremendous pressure to compromise. But despite all of that pressure, they steadfastly upheld the exclusivity of Christ. Adam threw up on the screen a little bit earlier uh, from Acts 4.12 where the Apostle Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now it's important to remember that when Peter said that, he wasn't chilling around in a Bible study with uh, James and John and he just said, hey, that's right, that no one else can be saved except through Jesus. You know who he said those words to? He said it to the religious leaders. The very ones who would put Jesus to death, he tells them those things. They believed in God. They were sincere and knowledgeable, yet sincerity and knowledge are not enough to be saved. One must believe in in Jesus. Then the Apostle Paul declared that Jesus is also the sole mediator of salvation. You know what a mediator is? It's a go-between, right? A bridge between two parties. And so Jesus is the bridge between God and man. He said in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man 
Christ Jesus. The great theologian Stephen Charnock wrote, quote, Christ is said to be the one mediator in the same sense that God is said to be the one God. As there is but one creator of man, so there is but one mediator for men. Friends, in closing, let, let, let me challenge us to seek to emulate the pattern of the early church. What I mean by that is that the church was known for its profound love of people. Whether they were Christian or not, they loved all people. They would give a cup of cold water to someone who was persecuting them. But they were also radically committed to the exclusivity of Jesus. Yes, friends, it is possible to do both. To love all people, as Scripture commands us to do, and to believe that Jesus is the way as Jesus tells us that He is. And in fact, you know what the earliest name for the followers of Jesus was? The way. They were called the way by outsiders and insiders. They were known as the way six times in the book of Acts. And if you think about that, where did that name come from? I don't think they just made it up when they're thinking about what, what should we name our church? They went back to Jesus's words here that he was the way. Friends, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to affirm His claim, don't we? His claim is very clear. The exclusivity of Jesus is not optional. It's not something that we can just kind of pick and choose that we like. Oh, you know, I love that I am statement that He's the bread of life. That really ministers to me. And I love that He's the good shepherd. I love that. But the ways and the truth and the life, I don't like that. We're not in a place to do that, are we? He is Lord. And on a practical note, if we lose the exclusivity of Jesus, you know what also happens? And you see it with a lot of denominations that this has taken place. You lose the heart and the drive for missions because it just takes it out from underneath you. If... Jesus is just one of many ways to heaven, then why invest the time and the resources and the prayer and people who actually will lay down their lives on the mission field to do something? If there are just many ways, we inevitably lose our motive and we abandon the supreme mission that Jesus has given to us to make disciples, bye-bye, <laughs> for all nations. All nations, if Jesus is just one way among many. I think the church has to ask ourselves, in the midst of our current cultural climate, where this isn't always a popular message, is it? We have to ask ourselves, do we want to be politically correct or biblically correct? We have to answer one day to Jesus, not to our culture. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. And we worship you. 
We thank you for making a way. We thank you that you were willing to go to the cross to make that way. That this way was not easy or free, but it cost you your life. And you are so good, God, that you make a way to a home that will be eternal and glorious. And Lord, that is my prayer today, that all of us would bask in that incredible truth, that comforting truth, that you will take us to be where you are. Regardless of the troubles we are going through at this day, that is our home. And may that be a source of comfort. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's never seen that, never embraced that, Lord, I pray that they would not trust what they think is the right way. Because Proverbs 4.12 says, there is a way that appears to right, but in the end it leads to death. They would see that you are the way truth and the life. And that today they would see that you came to die on the cross because we cannot pay for our sins. But you have made the way of salvation. And that today they would place their faith in you who, give etern- you, who gives eternal life to all who believe. Today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day when they launch out onto that way that will lead them home. Father, we thank you so much for these words. And we know it's a challenge when we hold things that sometimes are not received by our culture. But we want to be faithful to you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be bold, but also humble and gracious and loving. May you expand our hearts and deepen our convictions. May we be the way that you've called us to be here in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.